Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Well, thanks so much for joining us here on another episode of Market Journal. I'm Bryce Duskett. As the month of June continues, the summer heat is officially upon us, at least for most of us. Humidity is also back for those of us here in eastern Nebraska. Coming up on today's broadcast, we're going to be discussing corn nematode and get a quick check on the markets with Heather Ramsey from the ARC Group. Plus, as always, Bill Boyer is going to be stopping by to let us know what kind of weather we might have in store as we turn to the week ahead. We'll get to those stories coming up here in a moment, but first... Let's head out and into the fields with this update on the 2023 growing season. Located just south of the scenic Chimney Rock out in the panhandle of Nebraska is Schuler Red Angus. As their name implies, the ranch focuses, of course, on cattle, but they also grow crops to help support their herd. I had the chance to visit with David Schuler to get an update on the crops, but he began by giving us an overview on the ranch. Yeah, I guess you say we're diversified. Our bread and butter is flagship seed stock Red Angus cattle, and we supplement our feed stuff through raising our own crops and selling some corn on the side, as well as raising uh, dry feed edibles like alfalfa, millet, those sorts of things. Yeah, well, of course, as our in-the-field update, uh, I joke with you, we had to come to western Nebraska to find where it's been raining. You guys <laughs> were blessed in the month of May with lots of moisture, weren't you? Yeah, tables have turned here in Nebraska a little bit. I, I feel sorry for the easterners a little bit, but yeah, we've, we're blessed with about six inches of rain there in, in in May and it's continued to be wet through thunderstorms and we thankfully got everything planted. We dry out quickly so we can get that done and now everything's growing and ripen and it's probably going to dry out a little bit and just going to take off like a rocket ship hopefully. You guys are likely best known for your uh, registered Red Angus herd of course but on the crop side what crops are you growing and is, is all of that I guess going to, to support the cattle side? Yeah so most of it will go into our cattle crop. Uh, the bottom <laughs> half are genetics. We'll let them go into our own feedlot. We're diversifying that nature and feed out about 500 head and then we'll also have alfalfa on the side to put into our, our, our rations as well as as we supplement our cattle throughout the, throughout the winter. How is the crop looking this year? Of course you got your corn in the ground, uh, wrapping up planting and some other crops. Yep, yep, all corn is up and sprouting. Uh, looking to put fertilizer on here as soon as we can. Uh, and then we're just about going to be finishing up on our millet for the summer range as well on the dry land. So we're, we're looking okay. Everything's planted up and going and excellent quality. Well, it's green behind us right now, but it was not that uh, just a few months ago. Of course, the rain helping out with that, but you guys had a pretty big fire in the hills behind us. Talk about that in the recovery effort. Yeah, in August of 2021, we had a pretty severe fire here. One of the bigger fires of Nebraska's history and then started the, the trend of fires we had the last couple of years. But we had about 4,000 acres burn up 10.6 miles of fence that we took out and replaced and those hills behind us that are all green thank goodness thank the Lord itself but it's all green now and the, the grass is a resilient structure and it'll it'll take off you let if it gets that rain and here we are two years later it's finally looking like it used to yeah here's to that that is David Schuler out here at Schuler Red Angus not far from Bridgeport Nebraska of course out here in the Panhandle always good to be out in the field we do appreciate David letting us swing by the ranch Moving on now, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention tells us that zoonotic diseases are pathogens that can be spread from animals to humans. The CDC reported outbreaks back in 2017, causing over 1,500 illnesses and at least three deaths. There are some of the most commonly observed diseases following contact with young calves. And for more on this story, we will turn things over to Market Journal's Bill Dodd. 
A zoonotic disease is classified as a disease that can be transmitted from animals to humans or vice versa. While there are a plethora of zoonotic diseases to be on the lookout for, there are a few that should garner a bit more vigilance from everyday cattle producers. At the top of that list is cryptosporidosis and rabies. I, I think the, the, of the zoonotic diseases, I think 40% was the t statistic I put in there. That was cryptosporosis. So we know that that's just a very contagious high, high number that's there. Um, again, rabies, even though it's, it's rare, we're seeing that a lot more commonly in cattle. Um, and you only, you only know if it's there if you're testing it. And the only way to test it is actually having a dead animal and sending in brain tissue. So there, you know, there's potential for a lot more that could be out there that we just don't see. Um, but we know that we are having it come through our diagnostic labs and um, you know, it's, it is, it's just something we need to be really aware of. While cases of rabies in humans in the United States are rare, it's not uncommon to diagnose the virus in cattle. In fact, according to the CDC, in the year 2020, there were more rabies positive diagnoses in cattle than in dogs. While clinical signs can vary greatly, Rabies should be a consideration with any abnormal behavior, such as lameness, difficulty swallowing, and unusual bellowing. I mean, there is a potential for a calf having a rabies issue. So if the dam, actually, if the cow was a rabies positive cow and she's nursing a calf, then that calf is considered positive as well. And vice versa, if a calf is positive for rabies, the cow that it was nursing on is also considered positive for rabies. And even though it's rare in cattle, it's actually more common than I think that we, that we see. And so uh, rabies is spread by mammals. So it's a virus that can affect mammals that go around. And in this area, it's gonna usually be a skunk or a raccoon. And cattle are really curious and especially young calves. So if, if a skunk, if it goes up to a skunk and the skunk bites it and it is a rabid skunk, then that, you know, that, that's a potential for the disease spread. So because it is a 100% fatal condition, um, you know, this is why we need to really educate ourselves about it because even though it is 100% fatal, it's, it's almost 100% preventative. So there is a vaccine that's available and even though it's probably not economical or practical to vaccinate your entire herd for rabies, but you can vaccinate cattle that maybe are uh, a high, your high risk of being around them. So your show stocks or a valuable animal that you basically handle daily. Another disease to be on the lookout for is cryptosporidosis, or more commonly referred to as crypto. This common disease can cause severe watery movements in cattle and humans alike. Infected calves will range from one to four weeks of age and will exhibit symptoms including lethargy, weakness, and diarrhea. Cryptosporidium is a, it's a protozoa, so basically think of it like a little parasite. Um, it lives in the environment, so depending on where you calve, especially if you're calving in a dry lot situation, high concentration, it can potentially be in there for long term. So there's a chance for those calves to pick that up year after year. Um, they, they pick it up from the dirt, the soil, it replicates in the intestinal tract, and then they will shed them out in their, in their manure, so in the feces. And it's extremely contagious. So if you're handling an animal that is infected with cryptosporosis, then you have the potential to get that parasite in yourself and you get the same symptoms that the calf has. And it's passed fecal to oral, meaning you, you may not know that you have that, you know, that parasite on your hand and somehow it gets into your system too. Um, so things that we may not think about is applying chapstick or using chewing tobacco. So if you've been around some of those animals, anytime that you're touching your face or you have that potential to spread, you know, it's, it's just using good biosecurity um, methods. So 
especially now if it's branding season and we're really getting around those calves and processing them, um, you know, it becomes kind of a social event. There may be food, there may be drinks that are there. Just be really cautious um, about, you know, washing your hands and protecting yourself by taking your boots off or changing your clothes so that you're not passing that down to, you know, susceptible humans. As if viral and parasitic infections don't seem bad enough, there are also bacterial infections to be on the lookout for as well. E. coli and salmonella are two common bacterial infections that could lead to discomfort for you and your herd. So um, E. coli, salmonella, we're talking about bacteria now that can happen. Usually E. coli in calves is going to be those really newborn babies. We usually day five and, and younger. Um, e. coli can cause the diarrhea. It also can cause maybe you might see some blood in the feces. You might, uh, a lot of times it can become septic, which means it gets into their bloodstream. And salmonella falls in the same category too. So the only thing about salmonella that's different is that it, it affects all age range of cattle. So it can be from a newborn all the way to an adult. And the other thing is salmonella sometimes does not show clinical signs in cattle. So they may be carriers and shedding it and we don't know. So again, that's just another time to reinforce the fact that anytime you're handling animals, make sure that you're just being extra aware of, of washing your hands and, and you know keeping your boots clean and your clothes so you're not transporting that into a living area. Biosecurity is paramount to preventing the spread of disease in both animals and people. It is important to keep in mind that zoonotic diseases can be prevented with proper protection. When treating sick calves, it would be prudent to consider an isolation area for treating them. While people can be susceptible to these diseases, it's important to keep in mind that children, the elderly, and immunocompromised individuals are at a higher risk of infection. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Bill Dodd. Thanks for that story, Bill. Now, if you'd like some additional insights from Lindsay on this topic or any other cattle-related advice, you can find about just anything you're looking for over on the website beef.unl.edu. Turning our focus now over to the grain markets. This week we were joined on Wednesday in the studio by Heather Ramsey from the ARC Group. Here's our conversation. Let's summarize uh, where the grains sit as you and I have this conversation Wednesday afternoon. What are you seeing out there price-wise? Ah, uh, gosh, we're kind of all over the place when you start looking at old crop versus new crop. Old crop is, um, you know, I would say exceedingly tight. Uh, buyers are looking for corn and we're having a struggle finding it. Uh, but we're not seeing the same reflection in the old crop basis. There's some kind of background changes that are about to happen in kind of this old crop market that sort of lead that market a little bit differently than if you're looking at a new crop side of things. Uh, new crop wise, we're finally getting some weather risk premium. Primarily that is kind of our push higher when we see those updates. And then there's all those other, you know, items in the background still um, for over a year now, you know, Russia, Ukraine, that whole segment of the market. Um, our economic, our macroeconomic position that's still weighing on things. Just a lot of uncertainty. I think the overall takeaway for both sides of the equation is volatility. Mm -hmm. As much as maybe people feel like prices are a little bit more depressed versus where they would like them to be, this choppiness we're seeing day over day keeps volatility in the market, keeps things active, and it keeps giving us a little bit of opportunity here and there. Well, it seems like uh, each week there are d different reports that come out that traders, uh, some follow it, others don't, but it's like crop progress is consistent. There's the inspections reports. Mm -hmm. And new this year, it's it's been released year over year, but the drought monitor is something that's being oh. followed closely this year. It's getting pretty serious out across the country, isn't it? Definitely. I think people are 
are, are, are watching um, a drought monitor release just as closely as maybe we do some of these USDA reports. So there's kind of this countdown of what's the next one going to look like. And last week's was very telling. Um, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 36% of primary corn crop in the U.S. was in some was in drought stage one, and 28% of soybeans. That's not even talking about then the additional um, crop growing area that was in stage two drought. So there is another probably, uh, I think it was like 12 to 14% in stage two drought on corn, which is really important. Um, it's the worst kind of rating for this time of year that we've seen in a really long time. So we're watching that very, very closely. Um, USDA reports obviously still happening. And then crop condition reports. Uh, this week was our second week for that. Those are very important as well. We expect to see those align about a week um, behind with what those drought monitor reports are looking like. So there's an expectation that coming in uh, to next week, we should probably see a decrease to condition ratings as well, which are not really anything to write home about at this point in time. They're, they're sort of just there. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. well, As you look at these markets, corn, soybeans, and wheat, is it primarily a, a weather-driven market at this point, or are some of those outside pressures still factoring uh, pretty big? Um, you know, I definitely feel like the outside pressures are there. They may help kind of put a floor. Mm. They also really help put a ceiling on this thing for how far we can jump. We need another large catalyst to kind of break out of this range that we've been trading in. I think there is an expectation that weather could be that catalyst. But again, this is like us relying on Mother Nature to kind of help us out, and she's very unpredictable. Right now, none of the models are really aligning with each other consistently, nor are they panning out consistently. Uh, the primary model that every trader likes to watch is the GFS, and that's been very unreliable, very inconsistent. In the morning run, it says one thing. In the afternoon, it says another. So we are seeing that reflected in the market. That tends to be the primary go-to right now. Um, we really need sustained rains through the I states, really, to kind of take that weather factor out of the market uh, in any near-term reality. We'd certainly take the sustained rain <laughs> here in the end state of Nebraska yes. as well. At this point. Yes, I would appreciate that in the end state because um, irrigating isn't isn't fully caught up to where we need it to be yet. No, so. Not at all. Well, one of the things you referenced I want to talk a little bit about is the old crop basis. Saw a drop off across the region this past week. Yes. What happened? Um, you know, there's a couple of things going on here. I think it's summer, so it's hot. So if a plant is struggling to procure corn the way it needs to, there's actually a higher likelihood right now that they could take a temporary maintenance. Maybe it's just a four or five day window of maintenance, reduce some production, shift it to a different line, something like that. So living hand to mouth is a very real um, potential for these plants to try and save a little, maybe a little bit of money up front and overpaying for corn on the basis side. The other thing that we've got going on right now is the inverse is coming um, between July and September. What we've seen with this inverse scenario that we've been in for two years now is that cash bids start rolling way sooner than we ever used to see them. In a carry situation, you don't see them roll to the next futures reference month until the last day of the month prior. We're seeing this happen a month in advance on soybeans. Actually, we've seen it happen six weeks in advance, which is just kind of wild when you think about it. From the farmer standpoint, we've never really seen that. So there's a 70 cent inverse approximately coming, or today it looks like, between July and September corn. So how do you fight that um, from a financial side of things as the buyer? How do you try to avoid any really negative psychological impacts if you're the farmer and like you're looking out for them? Um, you try to get ahead of it by um, adjusting your 
front end basis against the July board so that when you hit that inverse, you can give a little bit of that back in basis so it doesn't feel like a full 70 cent uh, decline in cash price. So I think there might be a little bit of jockeying around there to try and say, okay, what can I get by with hand to mouth? How do I keep these prices at a price point that will incentivize grain to move? But I mean, let's face it, we had a shorter crop last year in Nebraska. We had some issues um, from storms and from drought and everything else. And so the reality is there's just not a ton of corn out there. Um, and it's gonna be very difficult through the rest of the summer to continue to source it. So trying to stay, I think trying to stay away from being the leader of old crop corn basis is also a huge, um, a huge point for these buyers as well. There's Don't always, be the first guy. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a lot to talk about, never enough time, but I appreciate you yes. joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Heather for joining us this week on the show. Now, coming up next week, we will be joined by Darren Newsom. As always, if you have a question you'd like for me to ask Darren, be sure to email us or get in touch on social media, and I'll be sure to pass your question along. Before we know it, county fair season is going to be upon us. In Logan and Lincoln counties, swine projects were recently on the decline. 4-H families decided to back a new pig lottery program to offer youth who live on or off the farm a chance to get started in the swine industry. Now, this program allows youth a chance to raise pigs and learn more about that industry by connecting members with a Nebraska swine producer. You can learn more about the pig lottery program in the June issue of the Nebraska Farmer. What well, is now time to get an update on the weather with Market Journal weather analyst Bill Boyer. Bill, I mentioned at the top of the show, the heat has been cranked up this past week. We've also seen just a few isolated pockets of moisture. So I'm curious, what can we expect when it comes to weather for the week ahead? Well, yes, and we're not going to have to wait long for some pockets of moisture. Uh, the heat's going to temper maybe a little bit uh, this week from what we've had last week. We're also going to see more moisture in areas that need it, uh, especially starting today. You can see the latest drought monitor. We continue to have exceptional drought conditions expanding here from the I-80 corridor. This now gets down into the I-80 corridor, the Lincoln area, uh, up through northeast Nebraska, surrounding that an area of extreme drought. Then we've had you know severe drought conditions here, still into portions of north central Nebraska, but dramatic improvement out west, where we're now down to a abnormally dry or just uh, some moderate drought conditions in the far southeastern corner of the state, now officially out of even uh, in being mentioned there on the map. Good news is there's more rain coming starting already this morning. Good chance of rain statewide today into tonight. Then as we go through the rest of the week, it looks like it's going to be the rich get richer out in the western half of Nebraska. As we go Monday and into Tuesday afternoon and evening, showers and thunderstorms continue in those areas. Now, by the middle to the end of the week, we start to shift those a little further to the east on Wednesday, Thursday afternoon, and then Friday. Again, the far east and the far west looks like they will do the best with shower and thunderstorms. Cooler temperatures today, we may only have 60s and 70s for highs in the uh, north and west before we bring those uh, milder temps in here. And as we go Sunday, cooler temps statewide. Again, that heat's going to stay in check through the early part of the week. It'll start to build later on in the week, but I think all in all, it'll be a cooler week even across eastern portions of the state than what it was uh, this week. So uh, good news if you're looking for cooler temps. Precip statewide could be dealing with some good moisture. 
be nice to get everybody to see some, and I think that'll happen here the next couple of days. Our 8 to 14 day outlook has above normal temps in the east and above normal precip in the western portions of the state. Expand that out to 30 days. Warm in the east, cooler in the west, and again, wetter than normal out in western Nebraska again. So, uh, yes, decent chances of getting moisture depending on where you're at in the state, Bryce. Uh, that'll do it. Back to you. Alrighty, thank you very much as always for that update, Bill. Finally today, we're going to be focusing on maturing corn and the impacts of corn nematode. We recently had the opportunity to catch up with Nebraska Extension's Tamara Jackson-Zims to learn more about this topic and some ways that producers can mitigate its effects. Let's talk about this subject. You told me you could fill 20 minutes. We'll try to get it out <laughs> a little quicker than that, but how does someone know if they have a problem with corn nematodes? Mm. Well, nematodes are complicated. We could talk for a long time about this. The gist of it is, it is that every field has plant parasitic nematodes, and the, which ones you have and how many there are really determines whether you have a problem or not. And you won't know that until you sample for them. But, you know, this time of year in the early part of the season is when you might see symptoms in those plants, and it'll help you pinpoint, pinpoint where those spots are to target for sampling. Sampling is important, as you're pointing out here. How do you go about sampling? I know it varies for different soil types. It, it does, and so this is part of the complicated part. It's not as easy as sampling for soybean cyst nematode and, and soybean that you can do any time of year. In corn, we recommend early in the season, and especially and only sample early in the season by about V5 or V6 if it's sandy. And that's because certain nematodes that require sand and actually cause some of the greatest damage, like needle, sting, stubby root nematodes, they can travel deep in the soil and out of reach of your soil probes. And so that's the only time of the season you're gonna catch them in the shallow uh, root zone. And so sampling by V6 is critical. If it's a heavier soil, you know, you can wait later on in the season, even till the end. The important thing though I want to remind everybody is some of those nematodes go inside the root and some of them can uh, be only on the outside or some will go in and out. It is, it's really important that the lab that you submit samples to also processes the nematodes that are inside the root to give you a better estimate of what's really out there. Hmm. That's an important point. I'm glad you mentioned that. I guess let's back up a bit. If I'm walking around my cornfield, how do I know if I have a challenge here? So often you see patches of stunted plants. Uh, they can be in patches, but they can also be individual plants. If you carefully dig them up, you'll see what could be some pretty serious root symptoms too. Roots that might be really darkly discolored, have lesions, the, the tips might be nubbed off. Um, they may have bottle brushing, and there's a lot of types of symptoms. That's a good reminder that we have a lot of different nematodes out there, at least half a dozen different genera and even within each one of those we say genera thing you know words that you may recognize like the needle the sting the stubby root lance lesion multiple species of each one of those at some point too so identify there's a potential problem do the samples comes back shows yes indeed that it's high is there a threshold i guess for for some sort of treatment or something you can do if you do have uh, uh, high corn nematodes mm -hmm. in your fields and, and that's difficult so we we don't have have treatment thresholds exactly, but we do have some basic guidelines. And so we assume that the damage that each one of these nematode types can be cumulative in nature. And so it's important to know what's out there again though. And so at some point, it, it's just really difficult to make that decision. 
those nematodes are always in that field. They may not always cause the level of symptoms every year. Mm -hmm. During a dry year that we might be starting out as, you often will see those symptoms because the root damage that's going on out there, the plant can't overcome it as well without adequate moisture. And so uh, you might see those symptoms. The nematodes have been there all along. Sometimes they peak and the populations are higher though. And so it's, it's just something to keep in mind. And we do have seed treatment nematicides that are available in corn. Um, often in the past, we've used a lot more of maybe some of the inferogranular type products that we also used long ago as insecticides. Some of those are very toxic and there's limited ways to apply them now, and so we've moved further away from those. To your point, crop rotations, you tell me those are important here. Tell me more. Well, it can be, and so the confusing part of this is if you've got this zoo of nematodes in your field, which is often several different kinds, some of them prefer corn even if they can feed on other crops like soybean or wheat, even weed species, and so some of those um, you may see a benefit from crop rotation, for example, with soybean, because they're not as good of a host. Corn roots are really big. They have a lot of what we call feeding sites, a lot of surface area. And so crop rotation can often benefit you. It might not get rid of the problem though. And so if you have a really bad nematode problem, you might have to use a combination of tactics to, to try to reduce or mitigate that damage. All right, I'm going to open Pandora's box here with this next <laughs> question for you. About a month from now, what are the biggest corn diseases we need to be watching out for? So that'd be about mid-season, and so a lot of that depends on the weather. And so um, one of the things that we're watching closely, of course, is tar spot has moved into our state the last couple of years, and tar spot likes cooler conditions. If temperatures are lower, like nighttime temperatures, we might, we're gonna see that start up at some point, probably more likely toward the end of the season, but it can start anytime we have those cooler conditions. And so watch for tar spot. More commonly, bacterial diseases uh, in Nebraska have been common the last, well, forever, I guess now, uh, bacterial leaf streak. Um, just keep a watch out, uh, know what's going on out there, and if you need any assistance identifying what those problems are, please submit a sample to the UNL Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic and let us know what you're seeing out there. It's a good point to put, or a good place to put a pause on today's conversation, knowing we're going to have you back many times over this growing season, I'm sure. That is Tamara Jackson Sims, our guest today on Crop Talk. Good stuff there with Tamara. As we've shared with you in the past, keep up to date with all the latest when it comes to the crops online at the website. It is cropwatch.unl.edu. Well, that is all the time we have for this week's show. We do appreciate you joining us for today's program. Remember to subscribe to Market Journal on YouTube for more content throughout the week. Now, coming up next week, we'll be on location of a big event that happens in Nebraska each year. Sure hope you'll join us on the program then. Until then, I'm Bryce Dewskit, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.